scary girl. Hi, everyone. Hey. I'm Sarah. I'm Stephanie. And this is Dead Time Stories. Episode 94, you said? 94. 94. Um, hey, guys. If you haven't listened to this show before, every week, uh, myself, Stephanie, and Sarah get together and we talk about ghosts, conspiracies, true crime. We talk about the paranormal, supernatural, and just generally really weird, eerie stuff. Because it's our show. And not, and not yours. yours. Yeah, bitch. Yeah. That's our new thing. We have two things um, now. Going back to two episodes ago, uh, when Christina was here and talking oh, about Onision. Oh, my God. So she wants to come back and do a third episode at some point. Already? Because there's already been some breaking news. But she's not ready to come back yet. She wants to wait. Not that she wants. She already is planning to do a third because there's there's new stuff, but she wants to wait for like something big to happen. I was thinking Onision is our new pooper intendant. Oh my god, that's because fair. the pooper intendant is done, and yeah. I can't give any more because he's done. But Onision is still a piece of shit, and we'll have Christina back to give. Speaking Onision of a updates. pooper intendant, Onision is still a piece of shit. Hey. Hey. Um, it's hard because I want. I want to read everything about it, but I'm trying to like not because I want. I her read to have what stuff. she sends me every now and then. I like today I searched stuff and I saw some headlines and then like walked away from it. Yeah, I was like, I read what she sends me, and I'm trying not to do any other like googling into it. Like you know, he's on easy on. Don't Google it. Right. Like, and don't, I don't look want, it up. I don't want to watch any of his videos because I don't want him to get any I don't money. Wanna, I know, but I'm so curious. Right, I know. I'm so but curious, I can't. I but I can't. I know. So. <laughs> so someone like screenshot it or something and send it so we can watch it. So we're not giving him money. I was watching a video, so I searched. I, I was like searching him, and a video popped up where this person was talking about why Kai is more likely to go to jail than Onision. I thought that that like they were going to go after Kai in an effort to get to get to I think Onision. the same thing. I but think Kai, Kai will definitely go to jail. Right. They have more evidence against Kai, so I think that they'll get Kai and, and then try sucks. and get Kai to take a plea bargain. Yeah, and then rat out Onision. I think that. I think you're right. Happen. Um but of what I saw today though, it was a video where it was it was one of those like Channels on YouTube that Christina was talking about where they just get on and like dish yeah. about like what's going on. So it's her talking about that situation. But the video, because that's just the audio, the video is just a picture she's drawing in uh, Procreate on iPad. <laughs> and it has nothing to do with the thing. It's like this cute little witch with like a little pet badger. But, but she's talking. Yes. But the video so is just weird. what she's drawing on the iPad. And she even says at the beginning, like, you know, I thought I would. You know, I show different kinds of stuff, and like you guys like to watch me draw while I talk. That's but so today I'm going to be talking about Onision. You know, I've been doing a little series about him, but the whole video was just like the drawing she was doing. I thought it was kind of hilarious, but I still listened because then I didn't have to like pay that much attention. Watch it, right? Yeah, Watching it every now fair. and then, I look up and I was like, "That's cute," but I was really just kind of listening while I did my work. But I had to send it to Christina because I was like, "Well, I love, I love that she was just like, um, this is what I'm talking about, but here's just a video of me drawing something." Here's me drawing a witch, but I'm going to talk about the real witch, Onision. Onision. Which witch is which? Uh, he's the bitch witch witch. Yeah, he is. The bitch witch witch should be in jail. Yeah, the bitchiest bitch of the West, the dickhead bitch of West Philly. Dickhead Philly. bitch of West Philly. No, he's worse than that. He is. Worse. Speaking, Anyways. Speaking of worse than that, Sarah. Stephanie. <laughs> y'all, y'all ready, ready to, to talk, talk about, about some ghosts? ghosts? 
Sarah, are you ready to talk about some ghosts? I think so. You're going first, though. We decided that. I am. I am. So I'm um gonna uh, I'm gonna be. Is talking... this the second week in a row we're not talking about ghosts? I'm not talking about ghosts. I'm not talking about ghosts either. <laughs> but we often don't talk about. Oh, we often don't talk about ghosts. I'm I know. I gotta figure out some ghosts. One of my stories. beverages. Oh, it's down by your feet. Yeah, there she is. Yeah, I finished mine. I gotta have a little something. There. A little something, something. So, uh, Sarah, <laughs> we already asked it. We already did it. Uh, today, I'm talking about the Atlanta murders of 1979 to 1981. Sometimes they're referred to as the Atlanta child murders because while many of the victims were children, so much child death. It's important to point out that not all of them were children. A good chunk of them were not children. Okay. There were a series of murders committed in Atlanta, Georgia, between July 1979 and May 1981. Over the two-year period, at least 28 children, adolescents, and adults were killed. Wayne Williams in Atlanta- 28? 28 in two years. Oh, my gosh. Now, there's a lot to this case. So, if that's one person, that's a serial killer. That classifies, in my case, two- or more people, like... If that's just, one person... Oh, my God. Yes. I just... I still feel like our regulations for becoming a serial killer are too low, but 28 in two years, that counts. Tell me about it. They don't think it's one person, though? There's a lot of different theories. Oh, no. And somebody has been convicted. Oh? Yes. And we're going to talk about that. His name is Wayne Williams. Okay. He's an Atlanta native who was 23 years old oh my God, at he's the a time baby. of the last murder. He was a baby. He was arrested, tried, and convicted of two of the adult murders and sentenced to two consecutive life terms. Oh, my God. A little babe. Subsequently, police have attributed a number of the child murder cases to Williams, although he has not been charged in any of those cases. And Williams himself maintains his innocence, although the killing ceased after his arrest. Depending on who you ask. Oh. Oh. In March of 2019, the Atlanta police, under the order of Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, reopened the cases in the hopes that new technology will lead to a conviction. So here's a timeline of the murders. Okay. Okay. In 1979, in the middle of 1979 in the summer, Edward Hope Smith, known as Teddy, and Alfred Evans, known as Q, were both 14. They disappeared four days apart. Terry Pugh later went missing in early 1981, lived in the same apartment as Smith. Their bodies were found in July 28th in a wooded area, Smith with a 22 caliber gunshot wound in his upper back. They were believed to be the first victims of the punitive Atlanta child killer. That's what they were initially calling him. Mm-hmm. On September 4th, the next victim, 14-year-old Milton Harvey, disappeared while on an errand to the bank for his mother. He was riding a yellow 10-speed bike, which was found a week later in a remote area of Atlanta. His body was not recovered until November of that year. Oh, my gosh. So, okay. So, like, two months. Yeah. On October 21st, nine-year-old Yusuf Bell went to the store to buy Bruton snuff for a neighbor, which is, you know, snuff, like tobacco. Mm-hmm. Eula Birdsong, uh, which was the neighbor's name, at Reese, uh, Reese Gregory on McDaniel Street. A witness said she saw Yusuf near the intersection of McDaniel and Fulton getting into a blue car before he disappeared. His body was found on November 8th in the abandoned E.P. Johnson Elementary School by a school janitor who was looking for a place to go pee. Um, Bell's body Did was... Did they say where in the school he was found? No, just in the school? In the school. 
Huh. Bell's body was found clothed in the brown cuff shorts that he was last seen wearing, though they had a piece of masking tape stuck to them. Hmm. He'd been hit over the head twice, and the cause of the death was strangulation. Police did not immediately link his disappearance to the previous killings. Yeah. That was all in 1979. Okay. 1980. On March 4th, 1980, the first female victim, 12-year-old Angel Lanier, disappeared. She left her house around 4 p.m. wearing a denim outfit and was last seen at a friend's house watching the television program Sanford and Son. Lanier's body was found six days later in a wooded vacant lot, Camp Belton Road, wearing the same clothes in which she had left home. A pair of white panties that did not belong to Lanier were stuffed in her mouth, and her hands were bound with an electrical cord. The cause of her death was strangulation. And they were panties that did not belong that to her. That were not hers. Weird. Okay. On March 11th, one week after Lanier's disappearance, 11-year-old Jeffrey Mathis disappeared while on an errand for his mother. He was wearing gray jogging pants, brown shoes, and a white and green shirt. Months later, a girl said she saw him get into a blue car... With a light-skinned man and a dark-skinned man. Oh, my gosh. Hide your kids. Hide your wife. The body of Jeffrey Mathis was found in a briar-covered patch of woodlands 11 months after he disappeared. Wow. By which time it was impossible to identify his cause of death. Yeah. That's a year. On May 18th, so this is just in May, um, 14-year-old Eric Middlebrooks disappeared. He was last seen answering the telephone at home and then leaving in a hurry on his bicycle, taking with him a hammer to repair the bike. His body was found the following day next to his bicycle in the rear garage of an Atlanta bar. What? The bar was located next door to what was then the Georgia Department of Offender Rehabilitation. What? His pockets were turned inside out. His chest and his arms had light stab wounds, and the cause of death was determined to be blunt force trauma to the head. <gasps> a few weeks before he disappeared, Middlebrooks had testified against three juveniles in a robbery case. Oh, my gosh. On June 9th, 12-year-old Christopher Richardson went missing on his way to a local pool. He was last seen walking towards the DeKalb County's Midway Recreation Center in Midway Park. He was wearing blue shorts, a light blue shirt, blue tennis shoes. His body was not found until the following January, clothed in an unfamiliar swim trunks, along with the body of a later victim, Earl Tyrrell. The cause of Richardson's death was not determined. On June 22nd, seven-year-old Latoya, or sorry, Latonya Wilson disappeared from her parents' apartment. According to a witness, she appeared to have been abducted by two men, one of whom was seen climbing into the apartment window and then holding Wilson in his arms as he spoke to the other man in the parking lot. What? On October 18th, Wilson's body was found in a fenced-in area at the end of Verbena Street in Atlanta. What the fuck? Like, what's the motive? It's... There's a lot. No one knows. We're going to get to it. By then, the body had been skeletonized <gasps> and no cause of death could be established. Oh. The next day, June 23rd, 10-year-old Aaron Weish disappeared after having been seen near a local grocery store getting into a blue Chevrolet. Okay, blue car. Got with it. Either one, uh, with either one or two black men. Oh. A female witness says that she saw Weish being led from Tanner's Corner Grocery by a six-foot-tall, 180-pound black male, approximately 30 years old, with a mustache and a goatee. Huh. The witness's description of the car matched a description of a similar implicated in the earlier Jeffrey Mathis disappearance. At 6 p.m., Weish was seen at a shopping center. The following day, Weish's body was found under a bridge. The official cause of death was asphyxiation from a broken neck suffered in a fall. 
In July of 1980, two more children, Anthony Carter and Earl Terrell, were murdered. Between August and November 1980, five more killings took place. All the victims were African-American children between the ages of 7 and 14, and most were killed by asphyxiation. In 1981, so this wow. is the last year of it. The murders continued into 1981. The first known victim in the new year was Luby Geeter, who disappeared on January 3rd. Geeter's body was found on February 5th. Geeter's friend, Terry Pugh, also went missing in January. An anonymous caller told the police where to find Pugh's body. Uh, what? In February and March of 1981, six more bodies were discovered believed to be linked to previous homicides. Among the dead were the bodies of Eddie Duncan, the first adult victim. The first. Yes. Out of all, all of, of those. those other ones were children. Oh, my God. Most of them between the ages of like 17 and four, of seven and, and 14. 14. Yeah. Ugh. So uh, Eddie Duncan was the first adult victim. That was um, in March of 81. In April, 20-year-old Larry Rogers and 28-year-old John Porter and 21-year-old Jimmy Ray Payne, so three adult men, are murdered. Porter and Payne were ex-convicts and had just recently been released from Arendelle State Prison after serving time for burglary. On May 12, 1981, FBI agents found the body of 17-year-old William Billy Starr Brarett on a curb in a wooded area near his home. A witness... On a curb? On a curb. Oh, it's like he was just dumped? Near his house. A witness, 32-year-old Harold Wood, a custodian from Southwest High School, had run out of gas about a mile from the scene. Wood described a black man standing over and observing the location where the body was found before driving away in a white over blue Cadillac. So another blue car. During the end of May 1981, the last reported victim was added to the list, 27-year-old Nathaniel Cater. He was last seen by Gardner Robert for, uh, by Gardner Robert I. Oh, sorry. By Gardner Robert I. Henry at the entrance of the Rialto Theater in Atlanta, reportedly holding hands with Wayne Williams, the person who oh? is convicted. Huh. His body was discovered just hours later. Whoa. Investigator Chet Detlinger created a map of the victim's locations. Despite the difference in ages, the victims fell within the same geographical parameters. They were connected to Memorial Drive and 11 major streets in the area. Capturing the suspect. Who they think was Wayne. Um, Wayne Williams is the person who they arrested. Okay. During the murders, more than 100 agents were working on this investigation. The city of Atlanta imposed curfews, and parents in the city removed their children from school and forbade them from playing outside. Yeah. Um, now, remember, if I'm not mistaken, I believe all of these children were African-American. Yeah, I was going to say, I can't imagine, I don't know, what the town must have been like after so many murders over such a small span of time. So there was a is lot. Is this what the second season of Mindhunter is based on? I don't know about that. Um, there is a podcast called um, Atlanta Monster mm-hmm. that talks about it. And it talks about what I'm about to mention now is that a lot of the effects of this murder of this like murder spree, mm-hmm. um, it had a lot of like racial implications a lot of African Americans would have sworn to you it had to be a white person. Yeah. Um, because a white person would have like, you know, who yeah. what what 
what black person would do this to other black people was a thought. Yeah. There were a lot of people that thought it had to be someone who was black because of the way that racial tensions were at the time. Yeah. So many more people would have noticed a black child getting into a white person's car. That's yeah. So what about, Oh my God. So people would have known. So that's a thing that people mention oh, a lot. That's rough. I know. Okay. Um, yeah, it's you see both sides. You oh, see both fuck. sides. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, um, uh, there's a lot of of implications of that that it was really tough. So when they finally arrested someone who was black, Wayne Williams is is a 23 year old black kid who had never been in trouble for anything. He's kind of chubby and short, mm-hmm. glasses, big old fro. He looks like a young Questlove with no facial hair. Unassuming little baby. Yes. Remember, you were like, he was a baby when I said he was 23. Yeah. And mind you, he was never charged with or convicted of any of the children's murders. He was convicted of the two adult murders. The 27-year-old that he was seen with last. And 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 one other person. The other one. That seems suspicious. Once those, once he was convicted, some, like I said, some people would say the murders stopped some people would say they just weren't sensationalized anymore because they had found someone. They're like, yeah, it was him. Now let's like not pay attention to this anymore and let's like move on as a city. And some people were like, they didn't really stop. Like, but they were. Who else has been killed since? Or there's just so many. There's just so many. But uh, it was a really rough time, especially in a lot of black neighborhoods in Atlanta during this time. Mm-hmm. And a lot of um, like black Atlanta residents would say it was kind of swept under the rug. And once they like had somebody that they're like, yeah, this guy, he did all of it. Our scapegoat. Right. It was a scapegoat. And then they had an excuse not to investigate the murders anymore. Oh, yes. Oh, so there are a lot of theories about what happened. Um, And then the evidence that they can. So the way that he got arrested is that. The a lot of the bodies were found along this same river, okay? And somebody had this idea, one of the FBI agents had this idea that it had to be that whoever was doing this was dropping these bodies off of one of like three three to five rivers or three to five bridges, bridges excuse me, along this river within Atlanta. So what they did was they had people in, this was just his idea um, because they were like, if he dropped this body, it was found over here. If he dropped it here on this day, two days later, this is where it would have washed up. And they had thought about this with a few of the bodies. So what they did was they planted people at nighttime to just sit and hang out by the water and see if anybody dropped anything in the water. Yeah. yeah. And one night he was going over the bridge and somebody thought they heard him drop something in the water. They did not find anything at that time. I think like a few days later, they found another body. But this is, there's no way to swear that that was dropped at that time. Do you know what I mean? There's no way to prove it. They heard a splash and then they stopped this young black man in a blue car. Yeah. And they said, hey, what are you doing on this bridge at two o'clock in the morning? And he said, well, I'm a talent agent and I was trying to go meet this person who's supposed to be a client of mine. I got lost. I couldn't find this address that they gave me and I'm flipped around and now I'm heading back home. And they were like, did you drop something off this bridge? And he was like, no. And they're like, "Mm, seems questionable. This is literally how they found and arrested Wayne Williams. 
Yes. And they tied him to the body of, they were like, you were last seen with this person. You were holding hands. How did you know him? That ended up coming up. But again, even if, even if he killed that person, which I'm like, the it evidence, mean that the evidence was kids. maybe somebody heard him drop something off a bridge that night. And then that guy turned up dead. Wow. That's the evidence. That's most of the evidence against him. Wow. Now, again, that has absolutely nothing to do with any of the children. But a lot of people were just like, yeah, that guy, he's the Atlanta murderer. He's the guy who killed all those kids and like, uh, and those two adults maybe, but like all those kids. Oh my gosh. And there's no evidence to link him to the children. Not really. No, not anything significant. Wow. Oh, my gosh. So during the murders, more than 100 agents were working on the investigation. The city of Atlanta imposed curfews. The media coverage of the killings intensified. The FBI predicted that the killer might dump the next victim into a body of water to conceal any evidence. Police staked out nearly a dozen bridges, including crossings at the Chattahoochee River. (laughs) During a stakeout, I know... (laughs) Way down low by the Chattahoochee. Chattahoochee. Never knew how much that muddy water meant to me. But I learned how to live and I learned how to love. A lot about living and a little bit. Love. It's Alan yes, Jackson. Yes. That's why I, I love was you laughing. so much. During a stakeout on May 22nd, 1981, detectives got their first major break when an officer heard a splash under a bridge. It was just someone taking a shit. That's the evidence. They heard a splash. Ugh. Another officer saw a white Ugh. 1970 Chevrolet station wagon turn around and drive back across the bridge. A white Chevrolet station wagon. Not blue. Not blue. Two police cars later stopped the suspect station wagon about a half a mile from the bridge. The driver was 23-year-old Wayne Bartram uh, Williams, a supposed music promoter. I love they say supposed. Music promoter and freelance photographer. The Chevrolet wagon belonged to his parents. Dog hair and fibers removed uh, were recovered from the rear of the vehicle that were later used as evidence in the case against William as similar fibers. What? <laughs> that similar? Were, right. Not identical. Oh, my God. As similar fibers that were found on some of the victims. They were found to match his dog, his own dog, and the carpet in his parents' house. What? They matched. So it, right. It, it's but they're from like, home. Right. You got your home fibers. On these some kids. of these bodies. But again, they were they didn't say identical. They were similar. Oh, my God. Yeah. So during questioning, Williams said he was on his way to audition a woman, Cheryl Johnson, a singer. Williams claimed she lived in a nearby town near Smyrna. Police did not find any record of her or the appointment, which he said he didn't like when he tried to call her. The number didn't work and he couldn't find the apartment. He, the address must have been wrong, which is why he was coming home. Yeah. Okay. But they were like, we never found her. He's like, yeah, I me know, neither. Me either. Right. We both got scammed. So two days later, on May 24th, the nude body of Nathaniel Cater, 27, was found floating downriver a few Damn. miles from the bridge where the police had seen the suspicious station wagon. Damn. Based on this evidence, including the police officers hearing a splash, police believe that Williams had killed Cater and disposed of his body while the police were nearby. Damn. Investigators who stopped Williams on the bridge noticed gloves and 24-inch nylon cord sitting in the passenger seat. According to investigators, the cord looked similar to ligature marts that were found on Cater and other victims, but the cord was never taken into evidence for analysis. They love saying that shit is similar. They do. Especially about black men in the and early 80s. And if they're 80s guilty or not. In Atlanta. Yeah. Yes. So... I'm like, this This case is as much about racism as it is about unsolved murder, by yeah. the way, to be clear. Yeah, absolutely. 
Adding to a growing list of suspicious circumstances, Williams had handed out flyers in predominantly black neighborhoods calling for young people ages 11 to 21 to audition for his new singing group that he called Gemini. Williams failed an FBI-administered polygraph examination, though polygraph results are not admissible as evidence in criminal courts because polygraphs are bullshit. Yeah, yeah I don't know. Are. I don't know if y'all know that, but they if you are. did They're absolute bullshit. You can fake that shit like crazy. You can know how to fake it if you're smart enough or, or if you take up something to do it. There are ways to fake yeah. it, but you can also fail it if you have a fucking anxiety problem yeah, like my nervous. ass. Oh my God. Who wouldn't be nervous? Fibers from a carpet in the Williams residence were found to match those observed on two of the victims. Additional fibers from the Williams home, vehicles, and pet dog were later matched to fibers discovered on other victims. Furthermore, witness Robert Henry claimed to have seen Williams holding hands and walking with Nathaniel Carter on the or Cater on the night of Cater uh, is believed to have died. On June 21st, 1981, Williams was arrested, which I'm like, I don't even know who that guy is. The person who was like, I saw them. I know mm-hmm. I mentioned him earlier, but I'm like, who even is he? He's a nobody. He's a guy who's like, I saw him holding hands with the guy who's dead. On June 21st, 1981, Williams was arrested. A grand jury indicted him for first-degree murder in the deaths of Nathaniel Cater and Jimmy Ray Payne, age 22. The trial date was set for early 1982. When the news of Williams' arrest was officially released, his status as a suspect had previously been leaked to the media. FBI agent John E. Douglas stated that if it was Williams, he, then he was looking pretty good for a good percentage of the killings. Douglas had previously conducted an interview in People magazine about profiling the killer as a young black man. This was widely reported as the FBI effectively declaring Williams guilty and Douglas was officially censured by the director of the FBI. Hmm. The jury selection began in December of 1981 and lasted six days. Nine women and three men comprised the jury. Among them, eight were African-American and four were Caucasian. The trial officially began on January 6th, 1982, with Judge Clarence Cooper presiding. The most important evidence against Williams was the fiber analysis between the victims Williams was indicted for, Jimmy Ray Payne and Nathaniel Cater. And the 12-month pattern murder cases in which circumstantial evidence culminated in numerous links among the crimes. This included witnesses testifying to seeing Williams with victims and some witnesses suggesting that he had solicited sexual favors. The prosecution's presentation of the case has been criticized to the extent that, in some jurisdictions, it might have resulted in a mistrial. In particular, two separate FBI special agents testified that the chances of the victims not having come into contact with Williams was virtually impossible. What? Based only on the comparative rarity of the fibers found on the victims that seemed to match the suspect's car and home. Similar. That's And that was the only, only linking evidence. Oh, my God. After reviewing the case, Georgia's Supreme Court Justice George T. Smith deemed the evidence, or lack thereof, inadmissible. On February 27, 1982, after 11 hours of deliberation, the jury found Wayne Betram Williams guilty on two counts of murder. He was sentenced to two consecutive life terms in Georgia's Hannock State Prison in Sparta. Wow. Where he is still serving to this day. In May of 2004, about six months after becoming the DeKalb County Police Chief in November 2003, Lewis Graham reopened the investigations into the deaths of five DeKalb County victims, 10-year-old Aaron Weish, 13-year-old Curtis Walker, 9-year-old Yusuf Bell, 17-year-old William Barrett, and 11-year-old Patrick Balthazar. 
Graham, one of the original investigators in these cases, said that he doubted that Wayne Williams, the man convicted of the two killings and blamed for 22 others, was guilty of all of them. And on June 21, 2006, the DeKalb County Police dropped its reinvestigation of the Atlanta child murders. After resigning, Graham was replaced by the acting chief, Nick Marianelli, who said, We dredged up what we had and nothing has panned out, so until something does or additional evidence comes our way or there's forensic feedback from existing evidence, we will continue to pursue the other cold cases that are with an hour reach. Wow. On the sixth uh, or on August 6, 2005, journalists reported that Charles T. Sanders of the KKK once praised the crimes in secretly recorded conversations. Although Sanders did not claim responsibility for any of the deaths, lawyers for Williams believed that the evidence would help their bid for a new trial for Williams. The police had investigated Sanders in relation to the murders, but dropped the probe into his and the KKK's possible involvement after Sanders was kept under close surveillance for seven weeks, during which four more victims were killed, and after Sanders, two of his brothers volunteered for and passed lie detector tests, wow. which we talked about earlier. That's just, yeah. Criminal profiler Joe E. Douglas said that while he believes that Williams committed many of the murders, he does not think he committed them all. Douglas added that he believes that law enforcement authorities have some idea who the other killers are, uh, cryptically adding, it isn't a single offender and the truth isn't pleasant. Wow. On January okay. 29, 2007, attorneys for the state of Georgia agreed to allow a DNA testing of the dog hair that was used to help convict Williams. The decision was a response to a legal filing as part of Williams' efforts to appeal his conviction and his life sentences. Williams' lawyer, Jack Martin, asked a Fulton County Superior uh, Court judge to allow DNA tests on canine and human hair and blood, stating the results might help Williams win a new trial. On June 26, 2007, the DNA test results showed that the hairs on the bodies contained the same mitochondrial DNA sequence as Williams's dog, a sequence that occurs in only about one in a hundred dogs. I'm like, that's still not crazy rare. Yeah. Um, Dr. Elizabeth Whittacombe, director of the US, a UC Davis laboratory that carried out the testing, told the Associated Press that while the results were fairly significant, they don't conclusively point to Williams's dog at the source of the hair. No. Because the lab was able to test only mitochondrial DNA, which, unlike nuclear DNA, cannot be shown to be unique to one dog. Later in 2007, the FBI performed DNA tests on two human hairs found on one of the victims. The mitochondrial DNA sequence in the hairs would eliminate 99.5% of persons by not matching their DNA. The mitochondrial DNA sequence in the hairs would eliminate 98% of African-American persons by not matching their DNA. However, they matched Williams' DNA and so did not eliminate the possibility that the hairs were his. But again, still not definite. Similar. Um, similar Gosh. enough by 99 point or sorry, by 98%, which I'm mm -hmm. like, that is very similar, but I'm like 2% is still, that's higher than the thing about the dogs. Yeah. On March 21, 2019, uh, Atlanta mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms and Atlanta police chief Erica Shields announced that officials would retest evidence from the burners, which will be gathered by the Atlanta police department, the Fulton County district attorney's office and Georgia bureau of investigation in a news conference. Mayor bottom said it may be that there is nothing left to be tested, but I do think history will judge us by our actions and we will be able to say that we tried as Interesting. of, as of 2019, Wayne Williams continues to maintain his innocence. So as of the last six months, um, and yes, this is what the second season of Mindhunter is about. Okay. That's what I thought. I was like, I have a feeling I remember Mindhunter being about the Atlanta killings. Wow. So. Woof. 
Those are the Atlanta killings of Gosh, 1979 to 1981. Uh, sometimes referred to as the child murders because most of them were children. But the people that he was convicted of killing were not. They were the, were two, the two of the adults. Correct. Wow. But people just like say that he did all of the killings. Oh my gosh, because they just wanted a scapegoat. Mm -hmm. Ugh. Yes. So there's a ton wow. of racial implications um, with the racism, not just in the city, but like within the police department specifically and how the case was treated and and the things that they had already decided about it before they had evidence to support those yeah. ideas. Wow. Oh, okay. Thank you for that. Thanks for that. Thanks I mean, it's a, it, yes, oh. I know it's a little heavy, but I think that it's like a really. It's good. Was, it's a I really like fascinating it's and interesting yeah. case that I poor kids. thought people should know about. Yes, and it's terrible, it's but kids. also, yeah. Oof. Okay. Sarah, what are you talking about? Um, I'm so sorry. I feel like I should, should have, have had lighter, you on first, or I should have had a lighter topic. Uh, I'm also dealing with another unsolved, heavy one. Not necessarily. It's not as heavy as yours, okay. but it's uh, it's definitely something that's unsolved. Uh, but this is a dis uh, disappearance. Okay, so this is known as the very strange disappearance of Joan Rish. The very strange disappearance. Very you strange. say. Let's um, hear it. <clears throat> so I'm going to be taking most of my. Uh, information from a Reddit post. Surprise, surprise, what's new? Um, I grabbed something off of Reddit, and this is a post that was put into one of my favorite subreddits, Unresolved Mysteries, and it was posted... Unresolved Mysteries. I love it. Um, this was posted two years ago by someone on the username of Nerdfather1. Love it. So Nerdfather1 is giving us this, and I'm just going to paraphrase, but some of it's going to come from here. So... Let's buckle up. Do it. I'm buckled. I'm wearing a condom. You ready? Yeah. You put on two condoms just to be safe. Just to be safe. You double bag it. That also makes it worse because they're going to friction. They're going to break. Um. So, October 24th, 1961, 31-year-old wife and mother of two, Joan Rish, disappeared from her residence in Lincoln, Massachusetts. Okay. Unknowingly at the time, this case would end up becoming one of the most well-known and complexing unsolved cases to ever strike the state of Massachusetts. Okay. Yeah, so, it's like, I guess a lot of weird shit doesn't really happen there. They just had the witch trials. That's what else. Yeah. After that, they're like, we're done. We hit our quota. Uh, Joan was born in 1930 in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, by age 10 in 1940, her family moved to New Jersey, and unfortunately, her mother and her father passed away in what is considered a suspicious house fire. Okay, of course they did. Uh, so her aunt and her uncle formally adopted her, and she took their last name, and so she was Joan Natras, as opposed to uh, Joan Bard. Anyways, whatever. Her parents died when she was 10 in a sure, suspicious yeah, house course. fire, and she was adopted by her aunt and uncle. Otherwise, her life continued on as normal. She had a huge passion for English literature. She graduated um, from Wilson College in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, with a degree in English literature. And she got a job in a publishing company and made her way through several publishing companies in New York City. And within four years, she met her new or she met a man named Martin Risch, who then became her husband two years later in 1956. And they moved to Connecticut. Um, they had their first child a year later. So in 1957, they had their first child, Lillian. And at that point, Joan stopped working and became a full-time stay-at-home mom. 
And yes, in did. 1959, two years later, she gave birth to their son, David. Okay. So they then decided to move to Lincoln, Massachusetts in April of 1961, I think because her husband got a different job. Um, but despite constantly moving between the states, they quickly integrated with their current community. And her husband was working frequently at his paper company and making different trips. And Joan was working at home and was actively involved with the League of Women Voters and had she expressed to her women friends like her ambition to become a teacher and share the love of her her love of literature when her children were older. So she expressed ambitions of getting back into the workforce and like teaching and teaching literature when her children were over uh, uh, older, not over. Oh my God. So they moved there in April of 1961 and they integrated into the community. Everything seemed to be going really, really well until the fateful day of October 24th, 1961. So the same fucking year. So what happened on that day was nothing was out of the ordinary or amiss. Her husband left uh, home a little earlier than usual, but he had to catch a flight to New York City for business. Joan gave the kids breakfast, and then she asked her nearby neighbor, Barbara, if she wouldn't mind babysitting the son, David, so Joan could run errands in the city with her older uh, child, Lily, and the daughter. I already am like, oh, gosh. So 11 a.m., she was seen coming back home with the daughter after attending the dentist and shopping for groceries, and according to few of the neighbors, both Joan and her daughter were quite cheerful even though they were tired. So nothing yeah. at this point, nothing is out of the ordinary 11 AM. She ran a few errands. The neighbor watched her son. She had her daughter. She came back. She was a she little was like, tired. No big, deal. no big deal. Ready for a nap, but it's fine. So she put David downstairs for a nap. Uh, some by sometime between 1115, 45, a delivery driver for a dry cleaning service arrived at the residence residence to pick up some of Martin, her husband's suits that he regularly had dry cleaned by this service. Yeah. And at 12 p.m., Joan put the son David down for his regular nap. So while David was napping, this neighbor who had watched David while they were out shopping and her four-year-old son, Douglas, came over to hang out with Joan and her daughter, Lillian. So Douglas and Lillian, the two kids, played in the front yard while Joan and Barbara talked. And this happened on a regular occurrence. This was nothing out of the ordinary. Again, everything is going as usual. So then Barbara went back home and the parents, both Barbara and Joan were like, let the kids play in the front yard. That's fine. So that's what they do. They're kids. Let them yeah. run around. It's fine. Douglas and Lillian were playing in the front yard of Joan's home and Barbara went back over to her house. So around their playtime, Joan is like in the yard too, doing yard work, messing with the flowers, the flower beds. And around 2 PM, she finished and she took, Joan then took her daughter Lillian and Barbara's son, Doug, Back to Barbara's home and didn't tell Barbara, but just told the kids, like, she'll be back momentarily. You guys play here in Barbara's yard, Barbara's home. I'll be back. After dropping the kids off, she went back home. At that point, around 2.15, Barbara was in the kitchen. She didn't know the kids were in her front yard. She's in the kitchen doing whatever. She looks up out the window. And at that point, she sees Joan wearing what appeared to be a trench coat running in a haste, carrying an unidentified item in her outstretched arms that was the color red. But since Barbara wasn't aware that the children were back at her house, she assumed Joan was just playing and chasing with the kids. 
The children continued to play at Barbara's house for a substantial amount of time, and eventually Barbara went outside on her own. She saw the kids, checked up on them. And other than Joan not being anywhere outside, things were relatively normal. And around 4 p.m., Barbara took Lillian back home so that she could go shopping with her son, Douglas, assuming that Joan was still at the house and was inside. So she dropped Lillian off and she made her way back home. And moments later, Lillian ran back to Barbara's house and she said, Mommy is gone and the kitchen is covered with red paint. Barbara went in to investigate and confirmed that the kitchen was indeed covered with a red substance. And then she found the son, the two-year-old David, who was put upstairs for his nap at 12 o'clock now after 4 p.m., crying upstairs in his crib because he needed his diaper changed and no one had checked on him since 12. So at that point, Barbara immediately called the police, and this was 4.33 p.m. When authorities arrived at the scene to conduct their investigation, many oddities stood out. In the kitchen, there was a table that was overturned. Also, that was noticeable was the phone that was generally mounted on the wall was dismantled, and it was thrown into a wastebasket. That was strange because typically the wastebasket and trash can was kept underneath the sink, but in this case, it was found propped up in the middle of the floor. And on the counter, there was an address book that was open to a page meant for emergency contacts, but that page was blank. So they come in, the table's overturned, phone is ripped down off the wall, thrown in the trash. The trash is out in the middle of the room when it's usually under the sink, and there's a book on the counter for emergency contacts that's open, but it's blank. On top of that, there is blood all over the floor. It's not red paint. It's blood. That's what I've assumed. Yeah. Um, other items that they found were uh, other items in the trash can that they found was an empty bottle of hard liquor that they knew was previous was finished the previous night by Joan and her husband. So they'd had a night. They had drinks. But there were empty bottles of beer lying on top of a pile of trash on top of the liquor bottles those were unaccounted for. Um, there was no beer in the household that was known of at the time, and Joan did not purchase any beer when she went out with her daughter yeah. on those errands. So there was beer in the trash can. We have no idea why. On top of the blood everywhere, there were also paper towels strewn about, along with Joan's son's David, so the two-year-old, his overalls, all of this was seemingly used in an attempt to mop up the blood. So paper towels mopped up with blood and then just like overalls that they God. attempted to mop up the blood with. As police continued their inspe- inspection throughout the home, a, body, a bloody palm print and various fingerprints were against various walls. Uh, moreover, drops of blood were found leading from the upstairs to the kitchen and then to Joan's driveway the location observed by Barbara when she was glancing out her window briefly. So it tracks sort of (coughs) Barbara saw Joan leaving and going out the driveway. And there's also blood going out that same trail as well. The blood throughout the residence was taken for sampling and analysis, which was a positive match for Joan's blood type, type O. Unfortunately, no confirmation could be definitely made on whether or not the blood belonged to Joan because she never had a recording of her blood or her fingerprints part of the incident because she had nothing on her record. During the conduction of the investigation, authorities called the hospitals in the area to see if a woman matching Joan's physical description arrived by happen chance or to notify the police immediately if someone matching her physicality checked in for information. Unfortunately, none of that happened. 
Uh, authorities canvassed the neighborhood. They questioned many of the neighbors and the residents. There were a handful of people who claimed to see a blue and gray sedan parked in Jones' driveway close to 3 p.m. And others reported that that same vehicle and the unidentified male driving the car was acting suspicious at a later time, with the possible person of interest getting out of his car in order to cut tree branches from a nearby wooded area and subsequently place them inside the vehicle before leaving again. So that's V-Weird. However, the investigators dismissed those neighbor statements and took it as nothing, saying the car was seen was more than likely an unmarked police vehicle arriving after Barbara's phone call, which happened at 4.30, even though the neighbors said they saw this car at 3 p.m. The police totally dismissed it. Other witnesses came forward, and they say they saw a woman that had the same body frame of Jones walking aimlessly near a construction site where a new highway was in the process of being built. And from their perspective, the female was clutching her stomach, and there appeared to be some form of substance on her legs. Some people describe it was mother. Uh, some people describe it was mud, while others describe that it was blood. blood. As for suspects. The police questioned Joan's husband, who was quickly cleared of having any involvement in his wife's disappearance as he was on a flight to New York at the time. There was also the what a lie. It's always the husband. He might have paid somebody. There was this was also the conclusion for the neighbors, the mailman and the milkman, which I found funny and the delivery driver picking up Martin's business suits for dry cleaning. They were all had solid alibis. They were all cleared. All of the avenues pursued by investigators eventually led to an unfortunate dead end. Until a reporter for Lincoln, Massachusetts local newspaper, The Fence Viewer, went to the public library to research similar cases related to Jones' disappearance. This particular incident led to a very intriguing piece of new evidence. A few months before Joan vanished, there was a list of 25 books checked out from the library by her. Although she was an avid reader and obviously loved literature, that's what her degree was in. Yeah. Joan's reading that she had checked out consisted of true crime and mystery, particularly dealing with murders and disappearances. She gone girled it. Even more staggering was the fact that a certain book Joan had recently read in September titled Into Thin Air had a plot revolving a woman disappearing from her home and the only evidence left behind was bloodstains in the house that were smeared with towels. Almost an exact she replica of Jones vanishing not long after. She gone girled it. Maybe. With this new information, more theories began to arise from neighbors and authorities, but sadly, it essentially was insignificant in propelling Jones' disappearance forward with positive momentum, regardless of the coincidences from her reading material. Nevertheless, the circumstances couldn't be ignored entirely, and throughout the many acquaintances Joan made during her very brief stay in Lincoln, she was only there for like four months. Throughout the many acquaintances she made during those four months and other areas previously, her personality seemed to be different according to who you talk to. Some of her friends described her as an incredibly devoted housewife that loved her family, while others reported her being ambitious and quite unfulfilled in her life as a homemaker. Which, they write that as though it's like, oh, she could be either, we don't know her her methods or whatever, or like her reasoning. And I'm like, that just sounds like a normal woman. Like on one day she's like, I love my kids and I love my husband and this is fine. And the next day she's like, God, what if I hadn't done this and had done something else? Like everyone does that, right? That's not suspicious. 
Okay. Okay. Well, mm, all right. I don't uh, know. I'm just like, I'm just like, oh my God, this is a lot. Furthermore, with Joan's troubled childhood and her parents dying in a house fire, um, rumors started surfacing that she was sexually molested and physically assaulted when she was young. However, those rooms could never be confirmed or denied. So that's just a complete like rumor weed. No one knows for sure. Hearsay. Hearsay. Objective, uh, objection, Your Honor. Hearsay. He say, she say, hearsay, whatever. Oh, I love that. He says, she said, hearsay. hearsay. Um, so more speculation and gossip started flowing throughout the friends, with some theorizing that due to her fiery ambition to fulfill her happiness and the frustration of being only a wife and a mother. The suspicious car residing in Joan's driveway belonged to a local doctor who tried giving her an abortion in secret so her husband wouldn't find out. What? So she was pregnant and didn't want to have another kid, so I had to get an abortion in secret. Or it was the milkman's. Mm, who knows? Although it is possible, considering that granting a divorce in the 1960s was deemed preposterous unless there was a genuine evidence of abuse, adultery, or other various faults complicating the sacred vows of marriage. Dang. So the other thought is that due to the difficulties and a lack of verification that would allow a divorce, yeah. Joan staged her own disappearance. She gone girled it. She gone girled it. So there's not been any shortage of theories or wild assumptions regarding Joan's disappearance. However, none have been able to provide adequate answers on what happened that afternoon, October 24th, 1961. Dang. Her husband and the two children continue to move forward with their lives, albeit suffering from a gaping hole left by a mother and a wife. Lillian and David managed to lead successful lives. Martin, however, adamantly believed that his wife was still alive, but suffering from a case of amnesia. He refused to ever change his phone number, believing that Joan might possibly make a phone call, and he never remarried. And in 2009, he passed away without having any form of closure. And to this day, we do not know where she is or what happened to Joan Rich. Fuck. The theory that I think is the most plausible is that she had either a botched abortion or a botched weird miscarriage premature labor and that was the thing that barbara saw joan carrying out of the house was a fetus that she was trying to get rid of and then in her losing all of this blood she stumbled around out into the woods and the land around the house and died and no one found her body and she was eaten by the wildlife and animals yeah Uh, that's what i think is the most plausible Jesus idea. Christ. But to this day, no one knows. She could have just gone girled it. But her husband believed that she was alive, and he kept the same phone number and never moved with the hope that she, she might call back. or she would come back. And he died without any closure. And to this day, we have no uh, theory. So that is the very strange disappearance of Joan Rish. Damn. That's sad. I know. I know. I hope she gone girled it. But like also like why would she? Why would she? Like maybe it was There wasn't was no a sign that like baby and she ran away with it or 
What I'm thinking is she just all of a sudden was like, oh, my God, my stomach hurts. She had a I didn't know I was pregnant, pregnant. gave birth to a baby say that. in the toilet. And there was so much blood. And she's like, what do I do? Wrap it in a blanket. Go Try to go to the hospital. Try to throw it away. She's like delusional. No, try to throw it away. Blood. She tries to cut it. There's blood. She's like, I got to clean this up before my husband gets home. I got to throw this baby out and just passes out. <laughs> oh, my God. Gotta throw this baby I out. I gotta throw this baby out. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That was heavy. <sighs> this is a heavy This is episode. a heavy episode. We're getting back into this dead time stories realness. Coming up on a hundred soon. Hundred up. We're gonna give you something cool. Hundred percent. We're not ready for it. We're not ready We're for what's gonna out. happen. You'll hear Who it knows? It's gonna be cool. It'll be great. Thank you guys for hanging in if you're still listening. <laughs> if you're still here after all this heaviness and you want to subscribe or help us out. Give us some money to help us get out of this depression that we put ourselves in. <laughs> Dang. The oh. best way you can help us out, of course, is by subscribing to our Patreon. We have $1, $5, and $15 tiers. If you can't do that, you can still, of course, give us a five-star review on iTunes. That is the best way to get our name out there and get people looking at us and listening to this show. And if you take a screenshot of that and you email it to us at deadtimestories, all one word, at gmail.com, we'll send you a sticker. Yeah, we will. For the price of a review. I that will is do awesome. it. You don't have to do, you don't have to pay any money. You just have to take It's like time, you're making money. Press a five-star review and take a little screenshot and send it to us. Bam. You can follow us at Dead Time Stories on Instagram. We do have a Facebook page. It's mostly just repeating what's on our Instagram. But for a dollar at our Patreon, you can join the Patreon-exclusive Facebook group, which is dope memes and good yes. times with a whole bunch of your favorite, favorite, favorite Dead Time Stories people. A whole bunch but of inside jokes. you can only subscribe to that group if you're a Patreon subscriber. And yes. that's just a dollar a month. A dollar. Come on. So yeah, get on it, girlfriend. A dollar makes us holler. Tell yeah. your friends to listen to us on any of their favorite podcasting apps. R.I.P. Podcoin. We're on oh. iTunes. We're on Stitcher. We're on Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play. Anywhere that you're going to listen to podcasts. We're there. And if you didn't like the show, don't leave a review. Send, Send me us an, an email. email. Deadtimestories at gmail.com, you guys. I'll take it. Give me the critiques. Let's I'll respond. It. Let me know what you think. I love it. We're here. I'm Stephanie. I'm Sarah. And, and this, this has been Dead Time Stories. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Dead Time Stories is hosted by Sarah Heddens and Stephanie C. Kernison. Music and editing by Eric Gershnow. Artwork by Rennie Slackman. 